This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Grace Bonney about her new book on women entrepreneurs and makers, and about the necessity and difficulty of change. You can change your job, you can change your interests, you can evolve, but don't expect that to be the seamless, graceful waltz into the next chapter. Here's Debbie Millman. What is the best piece of business advice you were given when you were starting out? Own everything, said Tavi Givenson, the actor and magazine editor. What does success mean to you? Success to me means being able to continue to do what I love, said Tanya Ageniga, the furniture designer and fabricator. What's the first thing you do every morning to start your day? Drink a cup of coffee and read the obits, said illustrator and artist Myra Kelman. The questions came from Grace Bonney, and the answers are in her new book, In the Company of Women, Inspiration and Advice from over 100 makers, artists, and entrepreneurs. Grace Bonney is the founder of the website Design Sponge, and she's here today to talk about her new best-selling book. Grace Bonney, welcome to Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Thanks so much for having me. I was re-listening to our Design Matters episode from 2011 and couldn't believe how much both of our lives have changed since then. You got divorced from your then-husband, Aaron. You came out. You met and married Julia Tertian, who was on the show last year. You moved upstate New York, and you were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And you just published a New York Times bestselling book in five years. How are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little tired. It's been a big few years, but a really good few years. How was your health? It's okay. It's all right. It's been difficult with book tour. I mean, I'm at the point with my diagnosis now with type 1 where I can see the silver lining. Thank God, because the first few months were just brutal with a capital B. But I'm understanding now that if nothing else, this disease has given me the incredible gift of perspective and being very present. I mean, at every five minutes of my life, I have a monitor on my arm that tells me what my blood sugar number is. And so I now live life in these tiny, short increments. And that is in direct opposition to how I used to live life, which was imagining these huge swaths of time. So it's been a gift in a way to kind of be more present. And how has your food consumption changed? (laughs) I'm much healthier than before, but we were always really healthy. I mean, Julia is an incredibly healthy human being. She's also an incredible cook. Exactly. And she, I mean, in many different ways, this diagnosis would have been so much harder if I wasn't with her. And she was an incredible support, but she made all of the food changes, which were substantial, seem easy and just sort of like, oh, we're just changing the types of things we eat, not we're eliminating a million things. And then on top of it, she's doing those things with me. So, I mean, you could not ask for or imagine a more supportive person to go through that with. In our last interview together, we talked about how your business model had changed quite a bit over the previous years. For example, when you first started Design Sponge, YouTube and Facebook hadn't even launched yet. 
No. It's, I remember when Twitter started, and which now makes me sound so old. I, yeah, it just it was a very different landscape, and that was a difficult thing to adjust to, but now I kind of like it. Well, you now have nearly, if not over, two million readers per day to the site. You have half a million followers on Twitter, and you have nearly a million followers on Instagram. How has this changed your business model? Completely. Social media both killed and rebirthed bloggers in an interesting way. I think that it felt like Pinterest in particular felt devastating for blogs. It sort of became this, you know, nobody needed blogs anymore, which was a real bummer (laughs) at first. But then I realized, you know, this is a gift. This is a challenge. This is a thing to help you either rise above and evolve or fade off. And I'm not a fan of fading off. So it was a challenge I accepted. And I love Instagram. I love Twitter. I'm learning to enjoy Facebook. I'm just trying to think of them as places to communicate in different ways about different things. And it's nice to have those options. How do you feel about Pinterest now? The craze seems to have died down quite a bit. It's just it's never clicked for me because I think Pinterest is for people what blogging is to me. I've always had this place to talk about the things I love and collect them and, you know, virtually pin them to something. But I completely understand why that was such a huge hit for people who weren't bloggers or who maybe who were, but just wanted an additional place to do that. And I think the last 12 years of blogging for me has been a slow evolution away from things and decorating and towards people and stories. So I've kind of inherently moved away from image-based platforms and to places where talking happens more. You've said you like Instagram because it has an informal, fun, of-the-moment feeling that you don't really get with a blog anymore. And while you plan your content to be more serious, this is your lighthearted companion. And it seems like you've really gotten good at understanding the point of view of each social network and community in looking at your Twitter feed and following it, obviously, being kind of addicted to it, (laughs) and Instagram and reading the blog and looking at your various tones, you seem to really be able to understand how to be present with your audience in each place. How have you been able to do that? I think it's the biggest gift of still being a blogger is this connection to a group of people that you don't know at all but feel very attached to and very interested in. And that's where they've gone. They've gone to social media. They don't come to the blog anymore. So it's my job to go find them, understand what they're talking about, what they want, and then find a way to synthesize that and combine it with what I want. And that's the challenge because I think a lot of people get stuck in the, okay, everyone on Twitter wants X, Y, and Z, so I will only produce X, Y, and Z. And I'm not interested in producing content solely for other people's interests. I want to find a way to combine that with what I enjoy. And so I spend a lot of time thinking about that. And it's it's a wonderful challenge to have. Do you find that people don't organically come to Design Sponge? They have to come through a social channel, so to speak? I, I have... And it might be my age, but I have Design Sponge bookmarked. So I will go to my bookmarks every day, but I think I'm probably living in a you know sort of Luddite Neanderthal world. Oh, well, I'm living there with you. I think I still visit the same five or six sites that I did 12 years ago when I started blogging. And I think we are kind of of an older generation of people who aren't necessarily following like links on Instagram to go somewhere. But I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm okay that things are changing. It, it really, it honestly took me like three years to adjust to the fact that 
people not only didn't really care about coming to websites anymore, but they didn't even care about where that content came from and who made Mm. it. That has been the hardest shift for me. And I think I unfairly tried to blame Pinterest for that. And I was like, well, who's responsible for the fact that people don't care about crediting content? They don't care about supporting the people who make the content. They just want it. They want to stamp it and put it on their page. And that's been a really hard transition for me coming from the kind of maker scene where attribution and credit and you know, just being aware. Provenance. Yeah. I, I think those are those are things that are important to me. And so that's been a difficult adjustment to the world of living online where I think the source of something is less important than kind of the impact or the trend it has at the moment. And do you see that still as prevalent as when Pinterest first launched? Or do you feel that it's slightly moved back toward the appreciation of the author, so to speak? I'd say it's edged a little bit towards the appreciation. I think as more people become content producers of any oh, level, the term. <laughs> they, they understand what it feels like to have things yeah. taken, stolen, whatever you want to say. And so I think there is a bit more understanding and compassion for that now. And I think especially now as people are more familiar with the idea of like small scale makers being copied by like big box stores, I think it's a concept people are discussing. I still think it's application and sort of where the justice happens, I don't think is actually happening. But I think there's a general awareness that wasn't there before. In 2009, you published your first book, Design Sponge at Home, which sold at last count over 100,000 copies. Your latest book, In the Company of Women, Inspiration and Advice from Over 100 Makers, Artists, and Entrepreneurs, has just been published. And a few days ago, you found out that the book has already been designated a bestseller by The New York Times. Congratulations, Grace. Thank you. This is such an incredible moment. This luminous book celebrates an extraordinarily diverse group of women ceramicists, crafters, furniture makers, tattoo artists, designers, painters, prop stylists, and writers, ranging in age from 19 to 78. They are creative women of all colors, ages, sexualities, and experiences, and they share their fears and their mistakes and their successes. And from what I understand... After the success of Design Sponge at Home, you were commissioned to write another book, but this was not what you were initially asked to do or what you were considering doing. What was that book supposed to be? (laughs) Uh, I was contracted to write a huge DIY encyclopedia. It was supposed to be sort of our younger, scrappier answer to Martha Stewart's encyclopedia. And it seemed like the natural evolution of the book process for Design Sponge as a brand. And then I found myself dragging my feet and dragging my feet some more. And then I thought about hiring somebody to do the projects, which I had a real ethical quandary with. And then I just kind of came to the realization that I'm avoiding this for a reason. And I kept looking at, you know, Pinterest and the the internet and just thinking, there are so many free DIY projects online. Why on earth would anyone pay for this? And is this the best use of anyone's time for two years to devote to this this book and then promoting it? And I just felt like I couldn't put my heart and my name behind it. And I went and I spoke with my accountant and I said, could I give my advance back? What would happen to Design Sponge? And it was not a happy answer, but it was doable. And I decided I would rather do that and kind of have to pare things back at the site a little bit than to spend, you know, a year or two working on something and promoting something that I didn't feel strongly about. So I wrote my publisher with the intention of just saying, I'm very, very sorry. Here's your money back. And then I spoke with Julia, my wife, and said, 
I'm just was so embarrassed that I made this mistake. And she was like, well, what about all the things you've been talking about, about women in business? And I'd actually pitched this book idea a few times before, and no one was ever interested in it. So I felt like it was just dead in the water. And she was like, why don't you rewrite it? Like, write this up again. And she is the world's best one-sheet writer. So she wrote the pitch for me, made it beautiful. And I sent it off with that email saying, you can have your money back, but here's another idea. And I heard back the next day, and Leah from Artisan, my publisher, was like, I love this. I think it's great. You can do this, but you have the same deadline, which is two months from now. So good luck. <laughs> oh, my God. You interviewed and photographed 100 yes. women in two months. And that is entirely due to two women, Sasha Israel, who was the principal photographer of the book, and Kelly Keeler, who's my team manager at Design Sponge, who project managed everything from day one. And Sasha would photograph sometimes six people in a day, which is really unheard of. And I've gotten so used to that pace now. And when I try to hire photographers, they're like, no, 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 two people a day. And I'm like, what? Sasha can do seven. <laughs> um, it was just a perfect storm of the right people in the right place at the right time. And the people we invited either like really got that energy and were into it or just couldn't make it work. And I loved it. Everybody kind of jumped in and was like, this is nuts. Let's do this. And and it was like the best summer vacation ever. What was that night that you had sent the email and hadn't heard back? What were you what were you feeling? What were you thinking? It was terrifying. It was a real eye opener because I don't think I realized how comfortable I had gotten at Design Sponge. I felt uncomfortable because the market was constantly changing. Ads are always dying. Traffic's always like splitting up and going somewhere else. So it felt like I was never on solid ground and I was always adjusting. But I hadn't realized that the general day-to-day -day running of the site had become a bit of a machine. And when I had this moment of like, oh, wait, here's this thing I could totally fall on my face with and, and not succeed at and totally be rejected for – I kind of had this moment of, oh, crap, I need to do a lot more of this. I need to take much bigger risks, and I need to dream a hell of a lot bigger than I've been dreaming. It was good. It was a, a scary good. I understand that the idea for the book started out as a Post-it note on your laptop. It did. How it, long was it there? It's funny. I can credit Pinterest for this, actually. Um, I was flipping through Pinterest one day. I don't remember for what. And I came across this old, I think it was actually like a pinup magazine. And it was a photograph of this kind of incredible woman. And at the top, it said in all colorful, bold letters, bold women. And I was like, ugh. I love loud women. I love opinionated women. Nasty women. Yes, nasty women. Um, <laughs> I love them all. And I wrote it down. I saved the picture. And I also saved the source, might I add. <laughs> and um, I, started, I started a little, like, digital sticky note on my laptop. And I wrote down names of women like Kathleen Hanna, Nikki Giovanni, Rachel Maddow. I was just thinking of people that I think are opinionated, who stand behind those voices. And I thought, God, I just want to surround myself with women like that. Why aren't those the women I'm hearing from in magazines more often? Because I think the design community in particular tends to sort of favor and borderline fetishize this very specific type of woman who is soft and tall and wafty and like almost like broken down. And that's not what makes me excited or happy or interested or inspired. And so I wanted to provide an alternative to that. So it started as a list of just 20 women I hoped to interview one day. And so when this project sort of became clear that it could happen, I had a list to start from immediately. 
In 2013, you came out publicly on your blog. You had ended your marriage and turned your world upside down in the blink of an eye, as you put it. And at that point, you realized out of nearly 20,000 posts that you had written in your previous 10 years running Design Sponge, far fewer than you hoped celebrated or documented homes or businesses belonging to the LGBTQ community. And you stated that the weight of your own hypocrisy felt overwhelming, and you worked immediately to change that imbalance. Do you feel like the book was part of that move towards writing the imbalance, no pun intended? (laughs) Absolutely. I think when I came out, I became incredibly aware of my site being a huge part of the problem, especially in the lifestyle community, of just putting the same type of person and the same type of family. I mean, in our form, that being like a house tour, a lot of young white couples, basically. And there's nothing wrong with young white couples. It's just that there's a hell of a lot more people in the world than those people. And it kind of created this image of like, this is what our site is. This is who we believe in. This is who we support. And I completely understand why queer people and people of color and disabled people, like why they wouldn't feel welcome at Design Sponge. And that was a crushingly awful feeling to realize I had created that. There was no one else to blame but me. And so it was an overnight U-turn. It was a stop the press. We're having a giant team meeting. This change is happening. It's going to be difficult. We have to totally reach out to completely different people who don't know us, who for very good reasons probably don't trust us or don't have any interest in being a part of a site that hasn't included them in the past. So it took us like at least a year to really kind of make those strides and changes. And, you know, we lost some of our team in that process who just weren't up for the challenge. Really? Yeah. But the ones that we kept... I mean, our freelance team is is much younger than me, and most of them are in their early 20s. And to watch them kind of change and understand and look at media differently is a phenomenal feeling. And we're all very aware of how much learning we have to do and how much listening we have to do now. You said that at that time you'd gotten too used to the sound of your own voice online and realized very quickly that you needed to talk less and listen more. How have you done that? Well, this book was a big part of that. When I wrote that, I thought, I don't want to put myself in this. I mean, I wrote an introduction, and that's pretty much it. I really wanted it to be about increased visibility and to set that up from a positive point of view. But after that, I just felt like I want these women and anyone in my site from now on to introduce themselves in their own words. I don't want it to be through my filter. I'm just ready to hear other people's stories. So I'm trying to turn Design Sponge into a platform where people can tell their stories in their own voices. In the introduction to your book, you include the quote by activist Marion Wright Edelman, and the quote is, you can't be what you can't see. This is really deeply felt throughout the book, Grace. How did you find the fascinating group of women that you profiled, aside from making a list? How does one go about, in two months, rallying up 100 women from all over the world to be in a book like this? It was a true village effort. I spent a lot of time on Facebook just being like, who knows Laura Jane Grace? Who knows Carrie Brownstein? Like, how do I get these people that I have zero connection to to even consider hearing a pitch? And I just think it's the testament to being someone who, you know, tries to maintain friendships and keep a a wide circle of contacts of people that I care about. And all of those people came through and said like, oh, hey, I know someone who works for her or who used to do her PR or whatever it was. And it helped me get my foot in the door. And I think that's all I can ask for. And I think of the people that I invited, I think maybe five said no. 
or just weren't able to do the project. So I think being able to be introduced through friends or like-minded people was kind of all the connection that I needed. And I just felt like the acknowledgments page of this book should have been like its own chapter because there really just were so many people involved in making this happen. From the research I did, I think there might have only been two women that couldn't participate, Rachel Maddow and First Lady oh. Michelle Obama. <laughs> Why couldn't they participate? Please. Oh, I know. For very valid and important reasons. <laughs> and I just continue to admire both of them endlessly. You've said that when you asked many women what they wanted to be when they were young, almost everyone had a certain level of performance in their answer. What do you think that means? I found it fascinating that I would say 90% of the women in this book said they wanted to be a ballerina or an actress or a singer. And I think that when you are the face of a business, whether it's a creative practice, like, you know, if you're a ceramicist or if you actually run a proper business with employees— you have to perform. You have to be able to be the face of something, be the voice of something, be brave and confident. And I think, you know, a little spark of that was retained from childhood when you had that sort of courage and blind, you know, excitement to just be on a stage and do something and be the face of it. You also heard that many, many women had to let go of the notion of work-life balance yeah. because it holds to this ideal of perfection. I don't even think work-life balance makes any sense as a term. But can you elaborate on how the women felt about work-life balance and their work as life, so yes. to speak? That was an interesting development. I did not anticipate. I really went into this book thinking I was going to find the secret to work-life balance by the end of it. And I think at some point when I was speaking with, I think it was Amalia Mesa Baines, who is, I believe, in her late 70s and lives in California on the top of a mountain. And she's an incredible painter. And I was asking her about work-life balance. And she just responded like, what are you talking about? That's not a thing. Like, have you not, have you not figured that out yet? And it was this wonderful moment of just realizing that many of the women in the book who who'd had so much more life experience had kind of learn to just let that go. And it's another example of women being asked to be the most perfect multitaskers ever. And, mm. oh, if you haven't figured out how to be at every one of your kids' soccer game and also be at every one of your conference calls, then something's wrong with you, not the expectations placed upon you. So that was a, a real eye-opener. And then it was also just this moment of realizing that Everyone felt that way but wasn't talking about it. And so I would relay that answer to women sort of along the line, and they all just kind of sighed, put their shoulders down. And it was this wonderful moment of like, let's Group just relax. cut ourselves some <laughs> slack. I left that book feeling so much calmer. Another common denominator in the book is that it seems as if the success the women have attained is almost entirely self-made. Yeah. For me, that was really important because I think so many business books focus on people who have venture capital money or some sort of grant or their family sort of paying for something. And that's a fair and accurate way to start a business. I just felt like I know a lot of businesses where people are just really bootstrapping it and are working second jobs, third jobs to keep things going. And I think it's important to show all those paths to business because then owning a business becomes less intimidating when you realize it doesn't have to be this thing that's all or nothing. It doesn't have to start with like a million dollars someone's given you to, you know, make a startup. I think businesses can start as hobbies. They can start as side projects. They can start as passion projects. And I wanted to reflect as many of those as possible. I was also really struck by how candid everybody was in the book. As a fellow interviewer here, how did you get people to feel so comfortable and, and reveal so much about their insecurities and anxieties and fears and 
was incredible. That's the crux of the book. And that was sort of a non-negotiable for me. I chose people because either I knew they were people who were willing to speak openly and transparently or because they were people I felt I could hopefully get to be open and transparent. And we did that, I would say, in two ways, by creating a safe space. And I created that typically by leading with that example myself and saying, you know, here's an example of a thing I've totally screwed up or a thing I'm still not proud of or that I'm still working on. And I think sort of taking that first step makes people feel comfortable. And then I think second, honestly, Sasha, who took all the photos, I hired her because she took a photograph of Julia years ago, and that's the only time I've ever seen Julia comfortable in front of a camera, and she gets her picture taken a lot. And it spoke to the power she had to make people feel calm, not judged, and welcome, and like themselves. And bringing her into almost all of the photo shoots, just it had this incredible calming effect that people were like, cool, here's this really nice girl who's going to make me look my best and feel my best, and it's not going to be a big stressful thing. And Sasha is blissfully unaware of a lot of the people in the book, and that really worked in our favor. And she had never, she did not know Chrissy Turlington was a favorite famous supermodel. And we were taking her picture, and she leaned over, and she goes, she's really good at this. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think kind of bringing that, like, wonderful energy into the space and then really leading by example, it, it created some really nice moments. Some of the responses to the interview questions of the women are absolutely priceless. When asked what was the best piece of business advice you were given when you were starting out, Tavi Gevinson, as I said, answered, own everything. So tell me about your feelings about her response and, and what was that interview like? That was wonderful. It was a really nice chance to realize that she's a normal teenager like everybody else. I mean, she's now 20, so she's crossed over. But to have so much experience and so much wisdom and honest, so much business savvy at that age, I was just blown away. But then we were in her apartment and she's a totally normal apartment for a teenager. I mean, for a teenager who owns an apartment. So that's a little bit odd. But I just thought I thought she was incredible. And that answer, it's funny because I interpreted it completely differently than everybody else I talked to. So I, I read that as literally own everything, like get your copyrights, get your trademarks, get right. all that. That's what I'm thinking. And that when I read it to other people, they took that as sort of the like two snaps, like own it, that sort of that oh. interpretation, which is also a wonderful way to think about it. And I've kind of played back and forth in my head with like the practical and the sort of just metaphorical. And I, I think those moments are both really nice. And I don't know which she intended or if both. And it doesn't really matter. I think everyone kind of takes something different from every answer. Matika Wilbur said, we don't live like nobody's watching. We live like our ancestors are watching. Matika is an incredible human being. She has been on a kind of epic photography project to document a member of all of the remaining First Nations tribes in North America. And it's just gone on and on as she's discovered more people who are undocumented. And that answer it still sits in my head because I think a lot of us don't have this idea of ancestry and family in our work. And that to me was wonderful because it reminded me of just the lineage of everything we do and that you're not just doing it for yourself and you're not just doing it for this year or next year. It's just very much about a long picture that starts and ends with family. When asked the question, what would you tell yourself 10 to 20 years ago that you wish you knew then, the musician Nico Case said, stop buying dresses. You hate them. <laughs> <laughs> She's so great. I love Nico Case. And then, of course, Myra, as we mentioned at the top of the show, what's the first thing you do every morning to start your day? Drink a cup of coffee and read the obits. Myra Kelman. Now, if 
one didn't know the work of Myra Kalman, I think one would hear an answer like that and think that they're very pessimistic, very gloomy people. And Myra is one of the most optimistic, open, engaging, brilliant artists in our time. What was it like to talk with her? I had the pleasure of interviewing her before on Design Sponge. I brought a lot of intimidation to that interview. I was terrified of her, just, I think, because of the sheer volume of her accomplishments. But she is a New Yorker through and through. And so when I hear that answer, I don't hear gloomy. I just hear New Yorker. And my (laughs) mother-in-law reads the obits every morning. Julia likes to read the obits, all born and bred New Yorkers. And for all of them, it's not about sadness. It's about this is sometimes the happiest list of accomplishments of someone's life. And it's like reading a highlight reel. And so for them, it's this really positive thing which to me is just I will always define as a Manhattanite. (laughs) You've shared what you've learned overall from not only writing this amazing book, but also having the panel discussions with many of the women included in the book at various events around the country. And I'd like to share a few of those learnings with our listeners and ask you to comment a little bit. They apply to anybody, not just creative women. They apply to every person in the whole world. So the first one is dream big and ask for what you really want. How important is the asking part? Dreaming big, I think people, lots of people dream, very few people ask. I find it particularly difficult for women. And the hard part about this book was I didn't want to make a lot of like, women do this and men do this comments. But I've interviewed and spoken with so many women over the past 12 years, and it is a common thread of I think we tend to belittle or dial back our dreams to make them more realistic or achievable. And for me, this book was a great example of just asking for exactly what I wanted to do and knowing that it may not work out. But I think I need to do a lot more of that. And so does everybody else. And the women in this book asked for what they wanted and they asked for help. That's a good thing to do. You also encourage building a support system. I think it's the most important thing any woman in business can do, period. You also say it's okay to work a side job. We're not all full time. And I really, really agree with this. The one thing that has fundamentally changed the course of my life are the side self-generated projects I did whenever I felt like my soul was being crushed by my day job. (laughs) Yes. And that goes both ways. That side job can be your passion project or that side job can be the thing that pays the bills. And there's no shame in either version of that. And on my uh, last panel a few days ago in Corda Madera in California, I was speaking with Lisa Wong Jackson, who runs a paper company called Good on Paper for the last decade, but has worked a full time job at the same time. And we kept speaking about her being on the panel. And she was like, but I still have another job. Like, does this still count? And I was like, absolutely. This is a wonderful example of somebody who has very practical goals and has a family and kids and needs a stable job, but doesn't want to give up the thing that is also still an exciting, passionate side project. The last point I want to ask you about is something I think you've done brilliantly, and that is embrace the pivot. Mm. We've been talking about that a lot on this book tour, and I don't think I expected that or realized how much I needed to hear that. I mean, I think I've spent the last 10 years slowly moving away from the core things that I found a design sponge for, and I'm not someone who spends a lot of time thinking about design anymore. I'm far more interested in the people and the stories behind those products, but it's scary to move away from the thing that is successful and safe. And this book is full of women who have made those moves. And I think we all know it's okay to make those changes, but we don't necessarily have a 
system or a guide to follow for what the feelings feel like when you do make those moves. Because on the book tour, someone compared it to shifting gears. And they were like, when you first learn to change gears and you drive a stick shift, you know, you grind and it's it's not smooth. And I think that's an important thing to remind people of like, of course, you can change your job, you can change your interests, you can evolve, but don't expect that to be this like seamless, graceful waltz into the next chapter. And so I think I'm in the process of kind of grinding through to that next chapter and having examples of women in this book who have done that and lived to tell the tale and are even happier. To me, that was just the most powerful piece of visibility. One of your big pivots was moving upstate to the Hudson Valley. You and Julia moved there last year. How has that changed your business? It has made me so much happier in every possible way. It's really helped me kind of step away from my business for a second and look at it and say, what parts of this are working? What parts aren't working? What parts am I doing just because I feel like I should be doing them? For me, New York City had a way of making me feel like every part of my business had to be number one or the most competitive or the most successful. And and there's a version of that that's positive and great and about drive. And then there's a version of that that forgets how important and valuable it is to just have a sustainable business. And so I moved upstate. I took a little bit of time off to work on the very old house that we bought. And I kind of realized I'm really proud that I still have a business that is functional and profitable and supportive of the people who work there that's been going for over a decade. And that is worth being proud of. And rather than, you know, lamenting the fact that I'm not the number one trafficked blog on whatever, I got caught up in that. And leaving the city really helped me appreciate the site and the business for what it was. And I just I feel very, very thankful to have it right now. Grace, the last thing I want to ask you about is a statement you made in one of your press interviews. You stated that now that you own a home and have a family, you're sort of growing up. What do you mean by that? I spent my 20s entirely devoted to my job, and I'm glad I did. It was great, and I love my work. And for me, I'm one of those people, I don't know how to separate life and work because what I do is so much of what I love. And so there is this kind of enmeshed quality that I just don't want to separate. But something about crossing into my 30s and moving out of the city, I've really learned to appreciate my personal life and to let myself let go of things that I maybe thought would be important to me at this age that aren't. And I've learned that what I need is not the most important thing in the world. And whether that's taking care of our dogs or making sure that Julia is happy or planning like the expansion of our family, these are all decisions that that just make my voice a part of the chorus and not the only one. And I'm just, I'm really ready for that to happen. And so for me, that's, that feels like growing up. Grace, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. Congratulations on creating this magnificent and necessary new book and kudos on all your well-deserved success. Thank you. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Grace Bonney's book is In the Company of Women, Inspiration and Advice from Over 100 Makers, artists, and entrepreneurs. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Mark Dudlick, published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes Store.